Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. I'm Peter Tofano, the Dean of the University of Oxford Said Business School. This series is taken from a program of live online broadcasts featuring our big thinkers and leaders from our wider network in the business world to help us deal with this historic inflection point. Today, we're talking about personal and professional well-being during the COVID-19 crisis. How can we take care of our mental health while facing the uncertainty of the pandemic? In this episode, we'll hear from three Said Business School academics with expertise in the science of well-being. They're going to offer some practical advice based on their research into what makes us happier, how to protect mental health at work, and how to juggle the newly intertwined demands of work and home. Dr. Cami Krolik is an Associate Professor of Marketing. Dr. Jan Emanuel Deneve is an Associate Professor of Economics and Strategy. And Dr. Mike Gill is an Associate Professor of Organizational Studies. Chairing the discussion is Professor Andrew Stephen, Associate Dean of Research, L'Oreal Professor of Marketing, and Director of the Oxford Future of Marketing Initiative at Oxford Said. Cami, Jan, and Mike will be looking at leadership aspects of well-being and mental health. But Andrew begins the conversation by looking at the impact of the pandemic and subsequent lockdown at the personal level. So I want to dive right in and let's just think about people, think about human beings, think about sort of the human aspects of, of this crisis. Certainly there is a public health crisis from a disease spreading standpoint, but I also think there's a public health crisis, perhaps more salient than ever before on a global scale when we think about um, mental health and well-being. Uh, and I know all three of you do research related to this, so I'm looking forward to hearing more from each of you today. But how about we start with you, Jan? Um, and because some of your research has been about factors that both enhance as well as detract from uh, well-being and, and happiness and life satisfaction. So kind of what's happening at the moment, uh, the way that you see it, and what things could you suggest might actually be helpful to people in times of this crisis? Well, in terms of the impact on well-being more generally, uh, to kick us off, there's a, in terms of drivers, there's a number of positives also coming out of this. Uh, so we find social support, volunteering, this notion of fellow feeling that the Queen alluded to is up. And so we will hopefully see positive and lingering uh, positive effects from that. But needless to say that the, um, the impact on health and especially the economics, when you think about the larger, uh, more broad social impact, is not necessarily gonna be undone by just fellow feeling. And so our research is really focused then on, for example, uh, when people lose their jobs. And so the, the well-being impact of this group in our society maybe should be emphasized even further. Uh, and the reasons are pretty, uh, are pretty stark as it comes through our, our research. It's not just the lost income uh, when people are being made redundant. Half of the impact really comes through losing uh, social identity and some self-esteem, comes through losing a daily routine, and especially comes through losing part of your social network, because for a lot of people, uh, that does come through their work. And so when people lose their job, we find that essentially we find a drop of about 20% in their life satisfaction, of which as I explained, half is only explained through income losses. And so my, my first thoughts in terms of the impact uh, on well-being from this crisis really, really is with the people that are being made redundant at this point. And that also brings me to, I think, an important point that we'll, we'll hopefully all emphasize on this panel is that the, from a well-being perspective, the notion of social distancing could obviously not be chosen more poorly 
what we should be practicing is physical distancing and putting in a special effort to connect socially more than ever, even if it is through Zoom or Teams or something else. Uh, so my sense is um, there's a risk uh, in this crisis for even people within and uh, staying in their jobs that we move towards social isolation for some and other related issues. And so we all need to put in a special effort to reach out, reconnect, reconnect with people that we may not have connected with recently uh, and shift that all online as best as we possibly can. I want to ask you, Mike, about sort of mental health in this sense, because a lot of your research has looked at mental health and, and, and being about people talking more openly about mental health. Um, what's your take on the situation in, in light of the work that you've been doing on that front? Sure. OK, it's probably helpful just to unpack and define mental health in the first place. Mm-hmm. By mental health, we mean something that we all have, and it's how we cope with the normal stresses of life. Mental health doesn't mean mental ill health. It means the mental health that we all have, just like we all have physical health. So just as we sometimes have problems with our physical health, you might sprain an ankle or injure yourself. We all have have challenges to our mental health and our well-being. So you might feel down or stressed and it's a spectrum. So everyone is somewhere along the mental health spectrum and having good mental health doesn't mean that you're happy and confident all of the time or ignoring problems. It means that you're living and coping well despite problems. So mental health is something we all have and it's distinct from mental illness. So mental illness could, for example, be clinical depression or something that's diagnosed by a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist. So we're we're talking about mental health here. And if we think about mental health in the workplace to total agreement with Jan, this is something that's going to be hit quite hard. The context where we do our work is vitally important. That's a lot of the research I do. And we know that there are many different models of stress or what drives stress. Those are things like a lack of control, a lack of support, lack of relationships, lots of change. And at the minute, we're seeing all those boxes being ticked, a really limited amount of control, very isolated socially from each other, lots of blurring boundaries. Many people who have children having to look after their children as well as balance their job. All that means incredible amounts of pressure on people, much more stress. So it's really going to be transforming and impacting people's mental health very significantly. Part of it also is perhaps a sort of a monotony of, of life. We have constrained options now. Sort of a, if, if I check my Twitter feed, you know, at any point in time, there's people, you know, talking about how tired they feel after a day of, you know, sitting in their home office, for instance, uh, on video conferencing or this term Zoombies as in sort of Zoom zombies um, and, and so yes. on, which, which is kind of cute. But you know, I think all of these factors could impact it. Perhaps, you know, Cammy, this is a good point to bring you into conversation because you've studied repeated consumption of things you know over time um and and i know you've looked at that more particularly in sort of food consumption uh and maybe a lot of us are consuming more food at the moment um not speaking from personal experience but i'm just curious what you think in light of what jan and and mike were saying around sort of the new lifestyles that we're finding ourselves leading and, and how that might impact sort of the hedonic enjoyment of of life Yeah, so I think that kind of what you were saying about this exhaustion that we feel by doing the same thing over and over again, uh, the research speaks to this. We often, when we have these repeated experiences, our enjoyment of the experiences declines. So we see that we are getting or extracting less enjoyment and less value over time. But I do look at factors that can increase our enjoyment of experiences and or sustain our enjoyment uh, of these activities. So uh, 
Unfortunately, variety is a really great way to sustain enjoyment, but we have less variety available to us now. So what else can we do? Uh, and we have a number of options. We can kind of change uh, the way we think about our activities. So when we think of the activities as really monotonous or repetitive, it's going to decrease our enjoyment more quickly than if we look at it as an opportunity to engage in learning or to dig deeper and kind of discover the nuances or become an expert in the area. So some things that I would recommend is uh, based on my research is that we need to start framing this as a way to discover new and exciting things about the activities that we already enjoy, use it as an opportunity to be an expert, or we could pick up complex activities, use this as a time to do something challenging, like perhaps learning a new language or picking up an instrument that you've always wanted to do, or at least mastering a new task that's available to you, like painting or cooking, things that we can do while we're physically distancing ourselves from each other. And focusing on that complexity and learning something new will sustain enjoyment for us. Thank you. I mean, so that, I'm going to bring in an audience question right now because um, we've got a question from Kagila, um, which is, what would you suggest to those who are at home and feeling vulnerable right now? Perhaps, Jan, we start with you on that. Well, Andrew, I'm, uh, I'm inspired by the comments just made by Cami. Um, try and break the, um, the mold and do something special, uh, um, um, whether it's trying an instrument or a new language or doing something that you're not usually doing does seem um, to be uh, a good advice. But otherwise, more on, the, on, on more traditional uh, avenues, uh, that daily routine, do try and get structured to your day like you would normally if you are working outside or out of, out of home. Uh, definitely also try and stay socially connected. And one silver lining perhaps of this, of this crisis is that it allows you to be perhaps a bit more vulnerable and open up um, to, uh, to other people uh, or maybe reconnect with people you haven't spoken with for a long time. So I think the, um, I mean, Cammy's advice is, is very good. And then I would definitely also add to um, try and connect more meaningfully and perhaps reconnect with people you haven't spoken with for a while. So reach out to people uh, as well uh, and, and speak and be vulnerable if need be. And I think it's fair to say that this is a, a sort of a global shared experience. Obviously people experience in their, in their lives different versions of, of what we're going through, but there is a probably more than, than perhaps ever in at least our lifetimes, a a commonality of, of experience, which could be making us feel more vulnerable or, or um, anxious about life. So that hopefully is, a, is a, an opportunity to kind of come together and talk about those, those sorts of issues, even though, you know, sometimes talking about mental health and, and related concerns might be hard for people. Um, but at least there's, a, I think, at least I personally feel a sense of uh, we're all in the same boat. Uh, and, and I think that can increase some solidarity. You know, another thought I, I had with this and sort of related to, to that question, but maybe expanding a little bit into the professional lives aspect. And Mike, I'm going to come, come to you with this is it's not just, say, vulnerability from sort of the more extreme consequences of an economic downturn that, that Jan spoke of earlier. But it's, you know, people maybe not being quite sure if their job's going to be the same or mm -hmm. are they doing a good job working from home? Are they, you know, they're not getting the same feedback that they would necessarily always get, or it's harder to do that, both from, a, I think, a, a team leader side, as well as a team member side, or maybe they're being asked to take on new responsibilities, because mm. one way to, to protect people's jobs uh, is to 
get them to, you know, if you're in a less busy role to get you to go and help out in, in a more busy part of an organization. Mike, how would you suggest people sort of deal with that type of change? Because it's perhaps not quite as, as visceral in terms of an experience as, as being laid off, but it's, I imagine, still pretty hard to handle for, for people going through it. Yeah, I think in, on that point, one of the key things here, which I think everyone else has touched on, is the importance of communication, whether that's with people who are close to you and loved ones, but absolutely also with co-workers, colleagues and employees. We, um, on the point of leaders as well, it's massively beneficial for leaders to communicate. We did a study with some colleagues at Cambridge and we looked at the role of mentoring in the police force. And we found that through frequent communication, you could reduce anxiety across senior and junior officers. And crucially, it was the senior police officers who were leading the mentoring who got a bigger boost to managing their anxiety. So this idea of communication can actually be profoundly beneficial to both parties. So if you have a team, I would encourage you to reach out to them. And if you're an employee, I would encourage you to reach out. You both stand to benefit in terms of your mental health. So, so let's, let's continue with communication now. And obviously that's very much uh, digital communication uh, in, in the times of physical distancing and being locked down. So we're leading our lives more you know, digitally than ever before, work and personal lives. You know, we're having you know, house party and, and these, these sorts of experiences, hopefully to keep in touch with people. And, and usage of social media and messaging apps has also gone up. And so, Cami, I want to come to you first around this uh, so you can share some of the research around social media use and well-being, because I think that's perhaps more, more relevant than, than ever as we're probably finding ourselves using these applications much more. Yes. So um, we are seeing in popular press about how social media is bad for us. So we're seeing that it's impacting our attention spans and our self-esteem. And so all of these negative impacts. But we know that millions of people, uh, they're using it on a daily basis. So really motivated by this fact that is social media negatively impacting our well-being. And so we basically wanted to address the simple question of how does time spent using social media affect our psychological well-being? And psychological well-being, um, it embodies things like happiness and life satisfaction and positive emotions. Um, so we wanted to look at how this general kind of cognitive and emotional uh, appraisal of how well we're doing is impacted by social media. So in the work that I did, we recruited over 1,800 participants and the study lasted for some participants uh, between four to six months. And what we did was we had participants essentially download an app onto their phone that tracked their social media use. And so we measured how much social media they were using on their phones and we pinged them periodically every two weeks and asked them about their psychological well-being. And what we found is that time spent using social media uh, luckily has a small but significant positive impact on our psychological well-being. And what this is really being driven by is kind of, I'm, I'm sure as um, Mike and Jan would also kind of reiterate and have alluded to, time spent on meaningful social connections. So time spent connecting with friends and family, even uh, coworkers or colleagues, 
people that matter to us, this uh, has the most positive benefit for our psychological well-being. So time spent in a truly social manner on social media uh, has this positive benefit, but when we looked at the apps that were primarily used for non-social <laughs> social media, if that makes sense, uh, maybe following influencers or celebrities or connecting with brands, this did not impact our psychological well-being. So we didn't find either a positive or a negative relationship. So luckily we did find that this connecting with truly, you know, in a truly social manner uh, positively impacted our psychological well-being. We're going to go deeper into the issue of how leaders deal with the issue of well-being at work. We'll start with a question from a member of our online audience listening into this discussion. Would it be helpful for HR to bring in psychologists to help people at work deal with the impact of the pandemic? Here are Mike Gill's thoughts on that question. I would say yes, absolutely. And I think it doesn't necessarily have to be psychologists, although many organizations do have them. You could simply provide training on mental health. So for example, there are training courses on mental health first aid or mental health awareness at work. The idea here is not to create psychologists or psychiatrists in the workplace because that's a very specialized skill set, and I don't think managers can take years to develop it. But that is not to excuse an absence of basic understanding of when people are suffering or struggling at work. And to be able to pick up on those cues, those signs can be done quite quickly. And that could be a massive, massive support to other workers. So yes, it would be great to bring on psychologists, but there are more small scale steps that could be taken that would also be very beneficial. And, and Jan, there's a question that's just come in from um, Maswaga, which is is actually kind of questioning the business as usual approach. So saying, you know, is it not a sign of unbalanced mental health to continue business as usual when and, and work as usual when, when the context has changed? It makes me think about what you said sort of in your opening remarks about people who were laid off and the research you've done around the well-being uh, impact of work and meaningful work. So the leadership issue, right? Do we... Do we just kind of keep on doing what we do or, or not? Um, what is right for our people? Yeah, what would, what would your thoughts be? Business as usual, in times of crises, leaders will quickly go to the notion of we need to lay off uh, a number of people in our organization uh, for good or bad reasons. And so I think where this crisis will hopefully show us a different alternative to this is to, um, and uh, you allude to this notion of we're all in this boat together, I remember uh, seeing qualitative work on well-being and approaches to a situation like this uh, coming out of the financial crisis 2008-2009, where some, only a handful of companies really, um, rather than laying off, say, 20% of their staff, they looked for original ways of not doing what is business as usual in these situations, but rather sticking together and perhaps um, offering people to go four-fifths or essentially forcing everyone on four-fifths and take a 20% pay cut rather than laying off 20% of their staff. And so it's these kind of, I think, original, innovative ways of, uh, or more creative ways, if you will, of dealing with the situation that can help on the well-being front uh, for the obvious reasons that you're not laying off people, which is obviously terrible for people being made redundant. But there's also something that people tend to forget. So say if you lay off 20% of, of your staff, that's horrible for the people being made redundant. But it's also horrible for the 80% of people that stay in your firm, mm -hmm. because who is going to be laid off? The anxieties are not just with the people that are being made redundant, they also travel and work their way throughout the organization. Um, and so back to the analogy of we're all in this boat together, 
if we, if leaders can hold off or some somehow find creative ways to stick together throughout this crisis, this storm that we will all weather to keep with, to keep with the boat analogy, uh, and if we come out on the other side, hopefully in a few months, I think those organizations that will have kept the teams together rather than culling their people uh, will come out stronger. And so this anecdotal evidence from these handful of firms uh, throughout the financial crisis kind of shows this. This was a particular law firm. And as compared to the other law firms that did the traditional business as usual approach in the crisis, this, this law firm who went to put everybody on four fifths came out stronger. Morale for employees, well-being was much higher coming out of the crisis. And as we know, and Mike also alluded to this before, there is a very strong uh, connection. And we know because our evidence shows it's causal between employee well-being and morale engagement and productivity. So if you can leverage this crisis into some kind of opportunity to think creatively, stick together, ride out the storm together, you will come out stronger on the other side, which will then have a productivity and performance benefits uh, uh, in, in the uh, hopefully not to this in the future. Thanks. And I, I just want to do one more audience question, and then I want to ask the, the three of you a few more things. But this, this comes from Nigel, who's saying a, a big issue is the stress and, and fatigue that's caused by spending a lot of time coordinating and not actually getting work done. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure, you know, a number of us probably have this experience. Maybe I'll go to um, Mike and then Cami, just, just for your personal thoughts on this. How have you been finding working versus coordinating or being organized during this time based on your own experiences? I'm curious, Mike, perhaps you'd like to go sure, first. Sure. Uh, so I think other people who have children will have also experienced this. You are now doing childcare, and trying to do your job. So, and I speak to many of my friends, very similar experiences. Lots of organization goes on behind the, the scenes, if you like, of work. And that obviously impacts on your mental health. You'll get behind on your work, you can't keep up. So the challenges that we face now are not just about having to do work in a different environment, but having to transform how we do work, how we manage our personal lives and the blend between the two. So I think it's a very different skill set that is required now and even more management and therefore even less time doing the true work as it were. And Cami, do you have anything to add to, to that from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think I can also sympathize uh, with Mike about the coordination with the children and, and now there's a lot of other things being added on to our normal day-to-day -day jobs that take a lot of time and energy out of what we would spend actually doing the work. I think another danger that we're all experiencing is this tendency to have our personal and our professional lives blend into each other. So there's no clear stepping away from your desk and being done for the day. And I think not taking that time to totally disconnect and and unwind at the end of the day or at the start of the day, however uh, your schedule typically goes, it's easy to feel kind of caught in this rat race or, or constantly managing. And so I think being very careful to take the time to completely disconnect and reconnect with your family and, and completely focus on the social interactions around you the best you can and, and really avoid letting it bleed one day into the next, I think is, is really helpful. And so now a look to the future. What happens next? What will be the impact of COVID-19 in the longer term? Andrew Stephen picks up on this thought. <laughs> 
to be a little bit pessimistic. You know, we've gone through this adjustment period. We'll get through that. And then, you know, we get used to the current way of working we're in now and the way of living our lives. And then, you know, so the world has opened up again or, or our towns and cities and countries, you know, gradually have that happen. And then do we go through another adjustment period? How do we sort of think about that? Not necessarily building, you know, massive sort of HR policies or corporate strategies around it, but but what might we want to start to be thinking about in the, the weeks or months to come about, in essence, the return to life as we as we knew it? Uh, Jan, do, do you want to kick off there with some thoughts, please? Uh, yes, Andrew, absolutely. So I think there's a few silver linings throughout this crisis, even if obviously, uh, generally, it's miserable for most, but there's a number of silver linings. One is that fellow feeling, these, these social connections. And I think with colleagues, but also outside of, uh, of work life, we've reconnected with lots of people in a more vulnerable way. You mentioned we're all in this together. This, this has strengthened ties. So I'm, I'm hoping that, and I know from, from past sort of, uh, sort of qualitative studies of crises, that this will hopefully linger. So this strong communities will come out stronger in a way. And I hope that we will benefit from this moving forward. Now, on the technology front, so I think the real, well, now let me first say something else about uh, changing potential changes in behavior. So people like us on the call here, and I suppose many of, of people listening or asking questions, are frequent travelers. In a way, the benefits of having a lot of our trips canceled <laughs> makes me also think, uh, and having replaced this by uh, conference or video calls, makes me think, do we really, really need to say yes to every single trip that's being offered or suggested? Can we, can we really not hold some of these as webinars or, or online conferences? And the silver lining here, so when we launched the World Happiness Report, normally we're at the United Nations, there's 100 people, it's all very fancy and great. But having moved it to a webinar, we suddenly had thousands of people zooming in uh, as compared to 100 people listening and uh, being part of the lounge. So I'm thinking, well, not only are we saving ourselves time and travel and no pollution and, and, and flying, uh, it could also benefit and do more. So I think some of these technological uh, changes or this, this travel behavior could, could benefit. And that one specific item on work-life balance and the, uh, the ICT, the, the communication technology that we've now set up, so all of our IT departments have worked day and night to try and set everyone up in the firm who can work from home to be able to work from home, whether it's Zoom or Microsoft Teams. So in a way that this has accelerated, I think, the deployment of this kind of technology. And it will be very hard for senior managers to say no uh, to people who say, look, can I work a Friday morning from home because it works much better for work-life balance? Can I take this meeting from home using Zoom or Teams or what have you? Um, it'll be very difficult to say no to these kind of requests because we've all lived through this and we now know it's possible and we're set up for it. So my sense is, and my hope in this in some way, is that um, work-life balance or flexible working hours or, or at least uh, some cutting in the commute, which we know uh, how bad that is for well-being, can be done thanks to having set up and accelerated the, the deployment of this kind of technology. Uh, maybe just on the commute thing. So we have, I looked it up the other day, very specific particular coefficients about just how bad commute is for well-being. We can even detail this to like the psychological cost of an additional minute, minute to your commute as is, is, is a pound in terms of income if you were to do the income equivalents. And so being able to say hopefully reduce or commute say one day a week and work uh, the, the afternoon or the day from home and hopefully I think um, positions will now or firms or organizations will allow for this which will hopefully be a positive coming out of this COVID-19 uh, situation. And, and your research does show that there are clear benefits from a well-being standpoint with work from home and flexible working arrangements. And you're right, this hopefully um, in, in a lot of organizations, this proves the point um, that it can be done. 
What about though this sort of cultural aspect, sort of the, again, within the context of organizations, uh, Mike, once we go back though to the office uh, or, or to our places of work, and you know, I've, I've been seeing, you know, with our teams here in, in the business school, increased camaraderie, basically. I, I, I've sort of was you know, likening it almost to a organizational culture reset button. Yeah. Um, not that it necessarily needed it, but, but you know, how do we make sure when people go back to those you know, familiar locations, they don't also slip into maybe some of their less positive habits in terms of the workplace, which might bring down the, the, the culture. So are there any tips that you would, you would suggest from that standpoint? Uh, absolutely. So the question you're asking is really one about culture. And if we change the culture, how do we get that to stick? Most attempts to change cultures of organizations fail because it's really difficult to do and it's deeply rooted assumptions of that organization that people hold. I would argue the scope of change that has happened in the last couple of weeks around the world is absolutely tremendous. And exactly as Jan pointed out, it's proven that we can do things differently. The world won't end, we can still operate, we can still function. And that really gets at the heart of the assumptions that underpin most organizational cultures. So the key would be, if we wanted to try and enforce or embrace this change on an ongoing basis, we need to clarify in each organization these changes, be very vocal about them, very clear about them, and explain how these changes still allow us to complete our mission, how it's gonna not negatively affect productivity, et cetera and then ride on the wave of this. If nothing has changed in three or four months, then it will very quickly fall back. If the changes to the assumptions of a culture can be solidified and encouraged now, then there's a massive opportunity for change, which rarely exists. And, and I think we could probably expand that a bit to um, relationships between businesses. Uh, and yeah. Cammy, I'm gonna to come to you on this from sort of a marketing perspective. You know, also we've been seeing quite a lot of, you know, very business contractual, you know, business to business type relationships being far more human now because, you know, you're sitting in your kitchen and, and talking to them on Zoom and they're in their living room and the kids running around or the cats climbing over the, the, the laptop or, you know, whatever it might be. So it does add this sort of informal human aspect to otherwise sort of business relationships. How might we preserve that from a, you know, inter-organizational standpoint as well? Because I think Mike's points on, on internal culture are well taken, but obviously in a business ecosystem, we might want to think about that too. Do you have any thoughts? The one perhaps downside of what Jan was saying is sometimes Zoom can feel a little bit cold or just even kind of scrolling through your feed on social media will feel a little bit cold. So technology lends itself to distancing in a way that when you're in the same room as somebody, it feels different. So I think that the fact that you're pointing out that like when children or pets jump on to calls and suddenly it's not business as usual and sort of a just strictly professional front, it does change the relationship and can lend itself to a lot more coordination and collaboration, I think. How that can change going forward, I think that Mike's point is well taken that anytime we try to implement behavior change, it's kind of like dragging a donkey along down the road. It's like, a, it's a very hard thing to do. Um, in times of crisis, we can move really rapidly, but we like to return to normal. So a lot of our behaviors, um, once this is over, we'll find ourselves falling back into routine. So I think that just reiterating what he was saying about this being very specific 
and very clear uh, to all parties involved about how you want to conduct business going forward. And I think that opening those lines of communication will help humanize business to business relationships. We're going to finish up with some top tips from each of our panelists on dealing with the crisis. Mike Gill is up first. I have three main tips, having healthy routines, making sure you're taking breaks regularly. And I don't just mean for lunch or for food, but other breaks and that you're communicating, connecting uh, regularly. So in terms of healthy routines, most organizations uh, in the healthcare space, so the British Psychological Society as well, World Health Organization, will tell people that they should follow a structure and develop a routine. And they're really vital because they give us a sense of security, they reduce our anxiety, they just help us cope. Routines enable us to get our work done, so they're vital for you and for organizations. And that means now, especially if you have a change of circumstance, so most of us are gonna be stuck at home and you may have other responsibilities, you need to think about how that's all gonna fit together. But my key point in this first idea around having a healthy routine is that a routine in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. You need to develop and maintain routines that promote good mental health, good physical health. So you need to think about your priorities, what you're gonna do, how you're gonna think about and protect your mood and your overall mental health. And some ways to do that are to make sure or bake into your routines breaks. So this is my uh, next recommendation is around breaks. Everyone, including the government, will tell you that you should exercise or socialize or take breaks. We know absolutely clearly that if you have a break, you lower your heart rate, you get calmer, um, but also it's really important at work. We know that if you relax or socialize or even have what they call micro breaks, so even less than two minutes, that can improve the performance in your work. So breaks are also good for you and the organization. But the key point here again is not all breaks are created equally. So we know from the evidence that if you take lunch, it doesn't impact your mood as positively as doing something else like socializing with other people. So a key point that you need to reflect on is when are you gonna take breaks and how are you gonna take them? Now, typically I would suggest something like exercise and although you can still do that, that is somewhat circumscribed at the minute. So my last recommendation here is around communication. So this is social creatures, we've all spoken about this, Jan and Cam and myself, it's vital that you communicate. And as we've mentioned, having any kind of break can improve your productivity at the work, but it's absolutely essential that you and the people around you, so if you have children, you need to think about how are they communicating? How are they communicating with friends or family in a meaningful way? To Cammy's point earlier, if you're using social media. I'll stop there, but those are my three main recommendations. Have a healthy routine, take breaks outside of eating and communicate uh, regularly. Thank you, Mike. Jan, how about your thoughts? Um, so I would like to obviously second uh, the three wonderful tips that Mike has uh, just uh, laid out. I'll, I'll, uh, let me add a slight uh, twist on the third one about social connectedness and then add two tips. So maybe together we can make six and then maybe Cami will add some more practical ones. So in terms of uh, connecting with others, uh, the point Mike was making couldn't be more true. Let me add a spin, which is connect with others and help others if possible. We find over and over again these positive feedback loops between if you help others and are essentially pro-social behavior, as we tend to call it, it pays dividends for yourself as well through the eyes and the gratitude that you see in other people. It pays back in multiples. And I think this, this helping others in a time of crisis counts double. So my sense is we see, we'll probably see coefficients on pro-social behavior and how it feeds back into your own well-being 
uh, be even stronger uh, as people appreciate it that need it. So I think that's absolutely critical. So I think that was uh, Mike's point three. So I'm emphasizing that one. Let me add a fourth one, which is related to discussions we've had. As much as social media can be a force for good or news more generally, we do have to switch it off from time to time. And so taking breaks from news media, including social media, is important. And for the very basic reason that we have deep evolutionary tendencies to um, spot big bad news, uh, we have a tendency to look at negative news more than we do good news. So for example, our eyes will spot how many deaths because of coronavirus. We will be less attuned to looking for news around how many people have actually come out of the, the hospital uh, positively. So how many people are coping and surviving fine. And so obviously newspapers have to sell uh, news. Uh, and so they tend to cater to uh, our instincts of, of negative news. So we need to switch it off from time to time. A fifth uh, general point, if I'm uh, adding cumulatively on mics, would be uh, to definitely look on the bright side. Um, so as always, an optimistic perspective on things. Uh, some things are better. I mean, I'm seeing Andrew sitting out there in the beautiful sun. And so we will hopefully all have some time today to go out for a walk uh, and a jog. So we're lucky in a way that this uh, lockdown happens at the beginning of spring and that we've had uh, an interrupted good weather. So that's just me trying to look on the positive side of things. But look also for silver linings, I'd argue. Um, there are a number of things that will accelerate. Um, so ICT technology advances, technology advances that will enable work-life balance better in the near-term future, probably faster than it would have otherwise been. So these are silver linings that I think we, that we can look out for and that we should leverage. And then maybe a final point, um, and I'm, I'm here I'm addressing more, I think, um, senior leadership that may be listening in. People feel helpless uh, to some extent in this situation because they don't necessarily understand it. And so we need to be brutally honest and transparent about when we think this lockdown will end, what our perspective is on it, looking relatively far ahead, making reasoned assumptions about how this crisis will unfold and which stages it will go through, and then make decisions based on that and being transparent about the reason logic uh, with certain assumptions for sure, but at least be open and transparent about those assumptions. So I would urge all leaders to really fight the sense of helplessness that a lot of people employees and otherwise are feeling to try and um, give a sense of perspective uh, and be transparent about the assumptions you're making in the logic that you're applying uh, to get that perspective of when we will be returning to normal, quote unquote. So that I think is important. Okay, and Tammy, the, la the last word of, of advice goes to you. Yeah, so um, I think Mike and Jan have done an excellent job talking about um, general tips and tips for our leaders. So I'll be a little bit more specific about my tips uh, in light of my research um, on social media and well-being. So this seems to be a theme that has emerged from this uh, discussion, but uh, we need to make sure that we utilize social media to connect with our family and friends. And so we are lacking a lot of these connections outside of just the few people we have in our immediate household. And so making sure that we're reaching out to the people who truly matter to us. So just personally, I attended my first Zoom wedding the other weekend. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't the, the best of circumstances, but it was a really wonderful a use of technology to connect with people that I'm physically distant from. And so looking for these opportunities to just get together for wine nights or play games uh, through social media and using the technology 
to facilitate the types of interactions and relationships that we would have uh, normally if we weren't all confined to our homes is imperative to good uh, psychological well-being and stay focused on the people that you wouldn't even necessarily think of so it was mentioned earlier but I'll just reiterate it as my tip that we're losing some of the connections that we don't necessarily think of. So the people that we would normally grab a coffee with um, at work or bump into at the hall, like these are also the important people that we need to be using and connecting with via social media. So making sure that even though you wouldn't maybe traditionally reach out on social media to some of your work colleagues, uh, using social media to supplement the types of interactions we'd have on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, while potentially limiting some of the time that we spend on uh, people that are distant from us, like the influencers and the celebrities, or potentially even the politicians uh, that, that we might normally just follow uh, passively. And then I finally is just uh, everything in moderation. So the fact that I'm not saying that social media is a panacea, uh, it, should replace all of our interactions. We can't forget that we, we have uh, significant others and we have children in, in the home with us. So use it as a really good opportunity. Uh, you're quarantined with them. So you know, make sure family dinners are uh, an important part of your routine and spending time reconnecting with the people that you love in your home. So turning off the social media and actually engaging in the live social interactions that you can have. My thanks to Dr. Cami Krawlick, Dr. Jan Emanuel Deneve, Dr. Mike Gill, and Professor Andrew Stephen. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to know more about Leadership in Extraordinary Times, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.